0: Good morning. Uh, So like was mentioned before the scripture reading, we'll be um, finishing Zechariah this morning. Um, Just like in past lessons, obviously we're going through multiple chapters at a time. And so there may be things that uh, we read over or um, don't talk about as much that you'd be interested in maybe talking about some more or thinking about some more. And that's just the beauty of a book like this, is there's so much to think about. There's so much about the, the book that's it's captivating, it's alluring, and those things I think are good to have more conversation about. Uh motivates further reading and further study. You know, I think about a book like Zachariah and its importance, like if there was some great underdog, let's say the greatest underdog of an NFL season, who ends up going from the bottom and winning the Super Bowl. You know, imagine if you're not very invested. I really don't care about sports, so I'm not very invested. You know, something like that would be like, yeah, sure, they they won the games, good job. And oftentimes I think that's what the gospel can become to us, is, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead, great. You know, I get the forgiveness of my sins, it's wonderful. But when you're invested, it begins to matter so much more the process and the reality of what it took to accomplish that work, and it magnifies its reality. And that's what we have in Zechariah. Zechariah 12 through 14 is like, a picture in the most vivid way of the gospel from beginning to end. There are some anchoring points of quotations in the New Testament that are within these chapters that I think give us a very clear context of fulfillment that makes these texts, although very captivating and sometimes very confusing, it makes the language and the scenes much more amazing when we realize that this is speaking of things that we have received. So in Zechariah 12 through 14, the focus is on God restoring hearts and holiness in this last section. This is one final oracle, and if you remember before, I would just define an oracle myself as just a very vivid and picturesque prophecy. It's portraying the future of what God would do through Christ and within the church in the most vivid and picturesque manner. So before we look at it more, I think maybe just one last time it would be helpful to get A context of the time frame that Zechariah was living in and why he was a prophet at all. Zechariah and Haggai are a part of the last few prophets that would ever be brought to Israel before John the Baptist. Malachi would be the last prophet of the Old Testament period, and he would come some generations later. But Zechariah and Haggai were two prophets who both worked together to help the Jews rebuild the temple, because Persia had initially, at the beginning of Zechariah's time, Persia had put a stop to the work forcefully. And they were trying to encourage the people to do it again and finish the work. Uh, You see that in chapter 8, verse 9, when uh, Zechariah tells the people, let your hands be strong that the temple might be built. But there's, there's more to it than just the building. And we'll see that in 12 through 14. The temple isn't even really referenced in 12 through 14. God had punished his people and scattered them in the past, but they had been brought back now to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding because they had repented with humility. They had no king or military power, and that's going to be a point of emphasis in these chapters. Their territory was diminished, the temple was not as beautiful, their work was was opposed, but God's promise is that everything he had ever said was being proactively and overwhelmingly fulfilled through the littleness of their work. And instead of a summary of Zechariah, I just want to give one summary of what you can trace everything in Zechariah back to, and especially chapters 12 through 14. To Abraham, God had made this cornerstone promise, and everything that happens after Genesis chapter 12 is because of Genesis chapter 12. God promised Abraham, I will make you a great nation, that's Zechariah 12 through 14, and I will bless you, that's Zechariah 12 through 14. And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. That's Zechariah 12 through 14. And the one who curses you, I will curse. We'll see that especially in Zechariah 12 through 14. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, and we will see that especially in Zechariah chapter 14 at the conclusion of the book. So these ancient promises, God is going to overwhelmingly and completely fulfill every single one of them. So let's start in chapter 12, um, verses 1 through 9. Um, So I've titled the sections of the lesson after Jesus's model prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're going to start in chapter 12. I think chapter 12 really looks at the coming of the kingdom. So chapter 12 verses 1 through 9. The burden or the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness." But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. And that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves so that they will consume consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. In that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So chapter 12 in this section has language where you may hear this and read it and just almost feel overwhelmed with confusion. What in the world is this talking about? And I think we have some anchors of context again in where we see quotations related to the New Testament to note very quickly after this section in verse 10 particularly um, that these are things that relate to Christ and the church. Before we get more specifically there, I think it's helpful to see the principles involved here. So the, really the overall picture is all the nations of the world are coming against Jerusalem. And you think about Jerusalem in principle as the place where God secures his dwelling with his creation, with mankind. All the nations come against Jerusalem and Judah to fight against them, but what happens? Are they victorious? Well, God strikes the nations with confusion. Their horses are struck with bewilderment and blindness and their riders with madness. So in a sense, the, the nations that come against Jerusalem, the closer they get, the more confused they become, and it's like they just self-destruct. And then Judah and Jerusalem are like this poisonous drink, this cup of reeling, almost like this intoxicating beverage that when it's consumed, when anybody drinks from Jerusalem, from God's people, it's like they begin vomiting and becoming mad. They lose their minds. And in verse 6, it says they're like a fire pot among wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. The idea is it's like they just set on fire everybody who comes near them to destroy them. And then Judah will be saved first. Jerusalem would have been a walled and secured city, but Judah was the territory outside of the city. So the people who are actually the most vulnerable, the least secure, the most unsafe, the least fortified, and the most weak and in need, God would save them first so that Judah would not be exalted above Jerusalem. And just, I think, an an anchoring point here for context, it mentions also that uh, God would make his people like this heavy stone, that anyone who lifts it up would be severely injured. Jesus actually said exactly that about himself in Matthew chapter 21, verse 44. Jesus, when he was talking about how the cornerstone would be rejected by those who were the builders, he then went on to say in Matthew 21, verse 44, And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. This is exactly what we see with Jesus and the church in the book of Acts. Everybody who came against Jesus, they weren't able to fulfill their mission or their purpose. Jesus was able to succeed in God's mission, even though all the nations came against him to destroy them. And then in the book of Acts, after Jesus' resurrection, you remember in Acts chapter 4 when the Jewish leadership took the apostles into prison and they threatened them to stop preaching and they prayed a prayer to God quoting these concepts they said Lord you are the creator of heaven and earth you prophesied long ago that all nations would conspire against you and they pray for more boldness to begin speaking the word with even more earnestness and God then shakes the place where they were and they simply just go on preaching the word. And that's the story of the book of Acts. That all the nations are set against the work of God within his people, but nothing can seem to succeed. And as the nations come against them, it's like it only enhances and speeds the purpose of God more and more as the nations come against them. And the Christians who go out preaching are like sheaves, consuming those all around them, either for judgment or for conversion. And here's where it becomes even clearer still just how set within the time of the gospel these images are. Verse 10 through 14. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and the end of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him, as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. So you think about Jesus' death and resurrection. There's this great victory. This overwhelming defeat of God's enemies. And yet, at the same time, in this victory, there's still a need for the most bitter grieving. This is one of the most incredible pictures of the gospel in Zechariah. It's like the Passover. You remember in Exodus chapter 12, when God struck the firstborn of every family in Egypt, there were individual families. I put the quotation on the board. There was a great cry in Egypt for there was no home where there was not someone dead. So it's almost like this is a new Passover, but obviously just as everything in Zechariah looks ahead with language they could both relate to, but language that takes that relatable concept and brings it to a fulfilled and furthered extent, this is the same. That instead of an animal being sacrificed, it is a firstborn son. Instead of God's enemies weeping while God's own children are set apart and safe, it's actually those closest to God who are here mourning mourning and suffering the grief. So again, it's like a Passover, but it's a new, furthered, more extended Passover. And notice again, it's not an animal. Somehow God is the one who ends up being pierced here, and somehow they're going to look on him whom they have pierced, and when this happens, they're going to mourn for him as if for an only son, and it would cause the most bitter kind of grief. Um, I don't know if everyone here can relate to this kind of grief. Um, Some of you I know can. But the greatest sorrow I've ever seen in my life was when a few years ago when I was still living in Minnesota, um, my sister-in-law, her firstborn son, she had a stillbirth, stillbirth very near to the time when the baby was due. I've never seen my dad weep as aggressively as at that time. never seen my brother weep as aggressively as at that time. It was a most bitter weeping. And the image is that somehow people are going to end up seeing God in this way, where sin is not just going to be seen as some moral offense of law or some breach of contract, but sin is going to be seen in its truest an essence as the humiliation and the murder and oppression of God himself and he puts them into his hands so that this mourning can be accomplished leading to the salvation that precedes it so the mourning would be in mass and yet and here's another mystery it would be completely personal so notice the emphasis in verse 12 through 14 you've got all of these families again just like the passover People aren't just gathered in the temple courtyard mourning. They're within their households in mass, like the Passover, personally grieving over this. And so this isn't just a communal thing that's being forced upon them. People are taking personal responsibility for piercing the Son of God. John 19, verse 37, again, an anchoring point of context. They will look on him whom they pierced. We obviously see very clearly who that's talking about. John chapter 19, verse 37, quotes this passage in relation to Jesus' being stabbed with a spear after he had died, and blood and water came flowing out of the wound. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, one of the things I struggle with is feeling the intensity that I ought to feel over sin. Images like this help me appreciate how intensely sin is meant to be felt. That this ought to be impactful, that Jesus had to die for my sin. That it's not just an event that happened in history ages ago. It's not just the Jews the time that were guilty, but it's meant to be a manifestation of the reality of what I've done against God so that I can experience a mourning that is blessed because of where it leads. When you read the Psalms, you see the psalmists having intensity in relation to confessing sin, seeking forgiveness, seeking reconciliation. Jesus fulfills the need that we have to understand how desperately we need God's forgiveness and what it is we've done that puts us in a helpless condition. Remember Romans 5, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were still helpless, Christ died for us. So, um, one of the most fundamental principles of this section is that God would do a work that would cause people to see their need for grace and supplication. The idea is God would show the need to receive what only he can give. And that God, in the way that this would work out, was not abandoning or throwing people away, but what he was doing was trying to draw people closer. And that's what we see in the next section. So chapter 13, I've titled this, Thy Will Be Done, Your Will Be Done, and we'll see that through this section. Chapter 13 focuses on the impact of these things. God has this great victory. There's this overwhelming victory where God strengthens his people. The nations become confused and incapable of defeating his people or overcoming his city. The great victory comes with this great grief among his people. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, the first effect. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Remember in verse 10, it says that God would send his spirit. He would pour out his spirit. This is a common Old Testament image of what God would do to bring the new covenant into effect. In John chapter 7, 37 through 39, Jesus said, Come anyone who thirsts, Partake of the living waters that will become within him a spring of water leading up to eternal life. And it mentions that this he said of the Spirit that was not yet given. So Jesus brought the reality of these promises that our deepest need, the greatest problem that the world has experienced and that we all experienced, God brings resolution through his Son. And Jesus brought the reality of these promises. Acts chapter 2 verse 36 through 38 Peter taught the reality of these promises In Acts chapter 2 the spirit was distinctively poured out upon mankind and what was preached is that Jesus had been exalted to the right hand of God and that God had made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom they had crucified and they were pierced to the heart when they heard the message and said men and brethren what shall we do and Peter replied repent And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter taught the reality of these promises. And we see in Acts chapter 2, a chapter in history that cannot be overstated or overemphasized in its importance. All of these promises, we see them very clearly in reality at that time. Then further than that, The people devoted themselves in Acts chapter 2 to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. We see that kind of devotion pictured here in verses 2 through 6. It will come about in that day, in verse 2, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say, you shall not live. For he have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord, and his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Also it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I am not a prophet. I am a tiller of ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. So the principle is this is a people that are being pictured here, a people who are finally fully devoted, completely committed to God and for his words. This is a people who are as jealous for God as he is for them. Think about this in relation to chapter 12, verse 10, that they're going to look on him whom they had pierced. And now these are parents willing to pierce their children through for betraying God and for speaking falsely in his name. Think about how ashamed also the false prophet is of his past. You know, this the, the peer pressure involved in the community. This, this reverses and undoes what has been Israel's greatest problem, the very first commandment, to not make any idol of God, to not speak falsely of his name. Israel was constantly listening to false prophets, constantly building idols to serve other gods. And God, through the mourning that would be accomplished, through his son being pierced, through causing a fountain to be opened for sin and impurity, this this catastrophic problem that had existed within the nation since its onset is finally completely resolved. And the peer pressure is no longer to abandon God's truth. Now the peer pressure is to hold on to God's truth. And so this false prophet, notice in verse 5 and 6, this false prophet in the illustration here would rather lie about his past than be known as a false prophet. So saying they're not going to do anything to try to deceive anymore. You know, he's going to say, oh, I'm not a prophet. I was a tiller of ground and I was sold as a slave. And then they'll say, well, what are these wounds? And it seems related to the beginning of the context with the parents piercing them. He says, oh, oh, these, I was wounded by my friends. He would rather lie out of shame of his past than admit that he had been a false prophet. Go to Ezekiel, if you would, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36. This is very similar to another picture of New Testament people that is in Ezekiel. A very similar picture. Ezekiel chapter 36, 24 through 27. And it's important when we read these things that we see a calling for who we are being called to be and become when we read these images of the expectation that the prophets had of who New Testament people would be. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from the, all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful." To observe my ordinances here's the point one of the signs of a truly genuinely repentant heart is a devotion to the truth that accepts nothing less and seeks nothing less than what God has spoken on everything our devotion to knowing and following and obeying God it ought to be unique and astonishing You know, there are those who just don't take God very seriously or his word very seriously. There's not effort that goes into conveying how important it is that we live by what God has said, that we treat him as a king, that we respect his wisdom apart from our own. And the most fundamental outcome, the first outcome after this fountain is opened, is devotion to the truth, an astonishing devotion to the truth. Let's look at the next effect, verses 7 through 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So this is another section that's directly quoted in Matthew 26 verse 31 related to Jesus. Jesus quoted this section as the shepherd um, that his sheep would be scattered as he would be taken and arrested leading to his crucifixion. But the idea is the shepherd being struck in this way would in some, again, mysterious way, somehow this would actually lead to greater loyalty, among the sheep and I think again this is still related to a theme of willingness to suffer loss chapter 12 verse 10 they grieve over the loss of this one who is pierced who is embodying God himself and there's this loss that's being grieved and in the beginning of this chapter people are willing to lose close relationships for the sake of the truth and to stay close with God And in here we see an example that Jesus was willing to lose everything for God's love and promises. Jesus set an example that who God is, his love for mankind, the salvation he's offering is worth the loss of everything. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 through 9, I would ask you to actually look in your Bible at Zechariah 13 verses 8 and 9 and just listen as I read 1 Peter and just listen to the fulfillment of these promises. Again, just how these things are anchored in our identity in Christ. First Peter chapter one, six through nine. If you just want to keep your eye on Zechariah thirteen, verse eight and nine. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The idea is our willingness to suffer loss for God now that Christ has manifested this unique loyalty to God's purpose. It's not just that our devotion to the truth and to God's promises should be unique, it should be our willingness to suffer and rejoice ought to be unique and astonishing. The promise is that the striking of the shepherd would result in this one-third part that God was going to take and put through the fire of refinement, and God is going to refine these people to be his special people. They would call to him, he would answer them, he would say, they are my people, and they would respond, the Lord is my God. These are a people who completely and entirely belong to God, and they will protect that relationship with God at any cost because of seeing that he bought that relationship at the greatest cost. Chapter 14. So this chapter to me holds what I think are some of the most challenging images in Zechariah, but are incredible to begin to see what this is in principle conveying. What I want to do with this chapter is just read through it in two halves, try to kind of read through it and then summarize what's being said, and then point to a fulfillment that I think helps to bring this entire chapter together in the book of Zechariah to a climactic conclusion. Start by reading verses 1 through 9. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah King of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the Eastern Sea and the other half toward the Western Sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. So again, God is conveying some conflict that's going to happen with all the nations. And in verse 2, God is initiating all of this. He's gathering the nations very purposely against Jerusalem to battle. But in this battle, there's no help that God has given. There's a miraculous escape that's provided in verse uh, 4. God fights against the the nations that came against Jerusalem, but the people at a time of catastrophic hopelessness, you just read the situation in verse 2. It seems like the city is lost to the nations. Everything is collapsing. But at a time when things seem most hopeless, God goes forth and stands on the Mount of Olives, splitting it in half, and the mountain literally moves aside so that God's people who want to flee for refuge can pass through the valley under the Lord for safety. This is a story that is a picture of each of our salvation that God makes a way of escape when things should be so hopeless. God creates an escape from the violence of his judgment, from the violence of Satan in hostility against God. A a way through the cross was created where Jesus stood on what seemed to be an impenetrable mountain. And Jesus stood on that mountain and split it apart so that his people could flee for safety. And I believe that this is an image of Jesus' victory in the cross. That a way of escape was made by this mountain that could not be moved by men, but Jesus split this mountain apart and showed his authority over it. He stands on this mountain for all to see and calls us all to come. And what happens? In verse 6, all natural lights vanish. I think this is signified in the day of his death when on the cross there was darkness for hours. Yet, in verse 7 there will still be never-ending light. And in verse 8, Jerusalem, instead of being captured and destroyed by the nations, somehow Jerusalem actually ends up in a glorified condition through all of this and living waters never cease to flow out of Jerusalem to then begin spreading into the oceans of the world. And then in verse 9, God will finally reign over all mankind as the complete and sole authority. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and preach the gospel. Jesus brought all of these promises to fulfillment. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. As we talked about in John chapter 7 already, Jesus promised living water when his spirit would be poured out on mankind. Jesus claimed all authority in heaven and on earth. Then further in verses 10 through 21, All blessings would then exclusively be found only within Jerusalem, while all others outside of the city are very visibly cursed. Let's read verse 9 through verse uh, 15 to begin here. The Lord will be, or chapter uh, 14, verse 10, rather. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will remain, will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's Gate, as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted up against the hand of another. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also like this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps. So again, let's just put together the scene here. And I think these principles can help see the the greater fulfillment that we'll be looking at in a moment in Christ. Verse 10 through 11, Jerusalem, the city of God, where God secures his dwelling with mankind is miraculously exalted through these events. What seems to be Jerusalem's greatest defeat turns out to be its greatest victory. Everyone hostile against God will be very clearly cursed while they live, yet God's people will live in abundant peace and prosperity. All the nations, in verse 17 through 19, are going to convert to become Jews, And those who don't will see or will continue to be cursed by God to draw them to Jerusalem. And we'll see in verse 20 through 21 that God's entire city becomes completely and impossibly holy. Let's read verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And that day there will be inscribed in the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like bowls up before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts all whose sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. There will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. So I think a, a helpful um, illustration about verse 16 through 19 with the Feast of Booths. Um, I heard someone who was teaching on this say at one point, what if God had said one day people would take the Lord's Supper every first day of the week? What would that mean to people in this time? That would ultimately really not mean anything they would have no idea what that means but to say all of the nations are going to go to jerusalem and celebrate the feast of booths that now that means something the feast of booths in principle was a celebration on the seventh month that was celebrated in the time of the day of redemption and it was a holiday that would look back on the egyptian exodus and on the journeys through the wilderness going to canaan And it would help them continuously identify again and again every year with the salvation that they had received ages ago and to continue to hold that as the basis of their identity with God. The idea is all of the nations would be converted and become a part of the Jewish culture. They would celebrate their exodus from God. They would celebrate that they with God's people were identifying with their journey to the promised land. And if anyone didn't celebrate this, God would put a curse on them that they would have no rain to draw them to convert and be blessed with his people because the invitation would be so open. Everything about salvation, everything about the need to seek the blessings that are only in Christ would be clearer. Clearer still. Ephesians chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 urges us to recall that you were once dead when you were living in the world. But because of the love and mercy of God, we have been brought to life to be seated with Christ where he is. Ultimately, just very simply, as the culmination of these images, turn please to Revelation 21. God promised that his city would become impossibly holy. Even the bells of horses, who would have been an unclean animal, would have something inscribed on them. Holy to the Lord. This was only to be inscribed on the crown of the high priest himself. The idea is, it's like there would be this super sanctified condition of Jerusalem where everything becomes most holy. It's like everything becomes the most holy place. And in Revelation 21:22 through chapter 22, verse 5, we see that this is our reality. Revelation 21, speaking of this holy city in verse 10, this new Jerusalem coming down from God. It says in verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and and its lamp is the Lamb. Remember again, this never-ending light, while natural light fades away. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, the conversion of all nations. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, this super sanctified, impossibly holy condition. Chapter 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And just as it said in Zechariah, there would no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his names will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night and they will have no need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. We're going to sing a song in a moment um, that Cody chose without me mentioning to him that this would be the invitation. We sing, O Zion, Zion, I long thy gates to see. O Zion, 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 shall I dwell in thee we see things we sing words that are expensive we already sang the word hallelujah what a savior hallelujah is an expensive word when you see that word used in the psalms when you see that word used in the book of revelation it's a word that conveys joy and praise because of the culmination of salvation hallelujah is an expensive word to use zion Is an expensive word to use. When we sing Zion, Zion, we are singing of God bringing us into a city that is standing on the mountain of His prophets, of Israel's suffering over the ages. It's standing on the mountain of Christ's loving kindness and faithfulness to the purpose of God. It's standing on the mountain of His suffering and on the beauty of His resurrection. And it's adorned by those who live in hope, to dwell within that city one day where God is at its center. And if you look at uh, verse 17 of Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. You know what the greatest application of Zechariah is here? It's an application of evangelism. You know, if we could only see the world like what Zechariah is picturing in chapter 14, that it's as as if everybody around us is cursed and dead while living and that the only blessings, the only blessings at all have all been reserved exclusively within that city that we are pilgriming, uh, pilgriming towards in our journey back to God. And so if we see things the way that the prophets pictured them, we will be motivated to also express that invitation to come. And this morning, that is the invitation. That God has accomplished this astonishing work in the most unimaginable way. And the floodgates have been opened. The gates of the city are not closed. And even this morning, the invitation is still extended. If there's anything we can do for you at this time, please bring it forward and come while we stand and sing.